Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our seventh study in Paul's letter to the Galatians that I've entitled A Call to Freedom. And today we take up the topic of justification and adoption. Now by adoption we're not talking about the kind of thing that people generally do today where they adopt an infant or even an, an older child. Uh, we're, I think probably most of us are familiar with that. But this is a different kind of adoption. It has a different meaning. In fact, literally the word adoption means uh, to place as a son. And we're going to talk about in detail what that, uh, what that means. But before we get into that, let's just uh, uh, quickly review the things that we've uh, been talking about so far. Remember, Paul is defending uh, his apostleship as well as his uh, preaching of the gospel of grace in this letter to the Galatians. Recall that uh, after he and Barnabas preached and moved from city to city, that there was a group of people uh, named that were called Judaizers. Uh, uh, who followed them? Who followed them around, and essentially said, "Well, you know what Paul's got to say about Jesus is pretty good, uh, and certainly you do need to trust in Jesus. But don't for a minute think that you uh, can become a believer without uh, also uh, coming under the law. You've got to keep the law." And so Paul's uh, whole letter is uh, is addressed to that issue, to that error that was being uh, that was being preached. Recall that justification is that act of God whereby He declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ Jesus. The uh, God uh, calls us to Himself. He grants us repentance and faith. We express that faith toward Christ, and when we do, God the judge, as it were, slams down the gavel and says you are acquitted of your sins. Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Now, uh, <clears throat> that's a declaration of righteousness. Uh, all of the righteousness of Christ is imputed or counted to the believer in Christ. And all of the sins of the uh, believing sinner uh, are uh, imputed or counted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is making a, a total of seven arguments for justification by faith. He begins by talking about the Galatians' own experience. In Galatians 3.2, he said, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, was there, the, when, when God saved you guys and you ladies, whenever God did that, was that on the basis of your keeping some system of merit? Or was it simply because you put your faith in Christ? And we talked about that to some extent. Then he used the precedent of Abraham. And the reason that he used that is because uh, the law came 430 years after uh, God's promise to Abraham. And uh, in Galatians 3, verses 17 and 18, Paul made the statement, The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Remember when God made His uh, covenant with Abraham? Abraham was sound asleep. Uh, and God, it was a that was a unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham. He said, "This is what I'm going to do." Whereas when you look at the law, which came 430 years later, it came uh, through uh, Moses. Uh, what God said was, "If you'll do this, I'll do this. If you'll do this, I'll do this. If you do this, you can count on me doing." This other thing, so it was uh, it was totally different. And what the Judaizers were doing, they were preaching uh, a system of merit. You've got to keep kosher. You've got to keep the law. The guys have got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the new moon and the Sabbath and all these kind of things. And really, it was just sucking the joy out of uh, uh, the Galatians' whole 
experience. And Paul is arguing, say, look, this uh, this law which God gave 430 years later, and it was a reason for God doing it, uh, that law uh, does not nullify in any way the promise that God made to Abraham. He also uh, offered an argument from a secular legal system. In Galatians 3.15, he says, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And that's pretty much self-explanatory. Then, uh, as we talked about in our last session, he he, um, elaborates on what the true purpose of the law was. And in Galatians 3.24 and 25, he says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that word until is an important word. Um, The law was in effect until Christ came in order... Why? In order that we may be justified by faith, not by a system of merit, not by keeping uh, kosher, not by keeping the Sabbath, not by doing all of these things, but simply by trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. And then he goes on to say, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now he begins to argue uh, regarding the believer's position in Christ. And after that, he's going to make a personal appeal. And we'll, we'll probably get to that as well. But he's going to talk about the believer's position in Christ. And that position in Christ, uh, when he talks about that, he's talking about adoption. He's talking about being placed as a son. The the word adoption is used five times in the New Testament, and it's uh, really it's uh, it's uh, there's a twofold reality to it. There's a present reality in uh, in Galatians four verse five. It says uh, that the reason that Christ came was to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it is a present reality that we have. But there's also a future certainty that's involved because if you if you read Paul's letter to the Romans in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit of God has taken up residence uh, in us. That's part of the new covenant. He puts His Spirit within us. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And then he clarifies that, the redemption of our bodies. So, there's a sense in which... uh, when God saves us, when He justifies us, when He declares us to be righteous on the basis of faith in Christ and His finished work, uh, there there is a sense in which we at that moment not only are born into the kingdom of God, but we also are placed as sons and daughters uh, in the in the kingdom. And yet there is a future reality uh, and a future certainty, and that is that uh, it won't all be over until we are with the Lord. And at the time of the resurrection, this new spirit, this new person that we are, will be freed from this uh, from this old body of sin and we will have a, a body like our Lord Jesus Christ so it's a it's a it's a marvelous thing that uh, that Paul is talking about here uh, in fact let me just read you uh, before we uh, get into the text itself let me just read you something it's an excerpt from chapter 19. Uh, Packer's book, Knowing God. And and again, I want to say, I I hope that for those of you who have not read Knowing God or have not read it recently, I I hope this will stir you to get it out and... uh, and and read it. It's it's not light reading, and it's not something that you read right before you go to bed. Uh, but it's uh, it's 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 just it, it, it'll it'll. I'll say this: uh, Billy Graham uh, was asked one time if he were going to be on a deserted island and he could only have the Bible and one other book. Uh, 
there with him on a deserted island, what would that book be? And he said, I don't even have to think about it. It would be uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's, it's, that, it's that kind of volume. So I'm going to read from uh, just a, a few, two or three little excerpts from chapter 19 of Knowing God, and the title of that uh, chapter is Sons of God. And Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Packer is going to be talking about uh, adoption. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. But this uh, cannot be said of every person. Uh, is every person a Christian or not? Emphatically, no, that is not the case. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. And then he quotes from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, "...to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God." And then he goes on to, uh, to write this, "...sonship to God, then, is a gift of grace. It's not a natural, but an adoptive sonship." And so the New Testament explicitly pictures it. In Roman law, it was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir and someone to carry on the family name to adopt a male as his son, usually at age, and he's talking about here the age of majority, rather than in infancy as is the common way today. The apostles proclaimed that God has so loved those whom He redeemed on the cross that He has adopted them all as His heirs to see and share the glory into which His only begotten Son has already come. And then he quotes from Ephesians uh, 1. I'm sorry, Galatians 4 and follows it from a quotation from Ephesians 1. God sent His Son to redeem those under law that we might receive the full adoptive rights of sons. We, that is, who were foreordained unto adoption as sons by Jesus Christ unto Himself. And then he uh, will close the quotation from Packer with his quote from 1 John chapter 3, where it's written, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. When He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And again, that goes, that, that's reminiscent of what we were reading there in Romans chapter 8, that at the time of the resurrection that, uh, that we'll have bodies uh, like our Lord Jesus Christ. So, and that's all part of the adoption. Now let's see how how he explains this. Let's, uh, let's just uh, review a little bit, uh, beginning in Galatians uh, chapter 3, where he says, Now before faith, uh, verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So we are, uh, we're, we're, we're free. We're not under the law. We don't have to, we don't have to keep kosher. We don't have to do all of these things that were required of, uh, of, of Jews. You say, and I've had, I've had some of my, uh, other reformed brethren who, uh, who have said to me, who quoted to me, uh, a, a favorite little ditty of theirs, and, and that is, uh, free from the law, oh, uh, blessed condition, I can sin all I please and still have remission. And clearly, that is not what's being taught here. Because when God saves us, He not only declares us to be righteous, that's justification, but He undertakes to sanctify us. That is, not only will we be declared righteous, but He will make us righteous. We are being changed moment by moment day by day, more and more, into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're not being changed, then we really need to uh, think again about uh, the profession that we've made about uh, our relationship with God through Christ Jesus. Because... Uh, 
part of what it means to be a believer is to uh, be more and more Christ-like. And that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does within us. He indwells us and He leads us into righteousness. Remember Psalm 23? He leads me in paths of what? Righteousness for His name's sake. For, for the sake of His name, He leads us in paths of righteousness. We are to be, uh, we are to uh, have a good testimony before others. We are to be witnesses of, of, uh, of the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the holiness of God Himself. Now in verse 26 of Galatians 3, He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now we are born into the kingdom of God and we are like babies when we are born into the kingdom. And, and although we are babies born into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, God also reckons us, just as He reckons the, uh, the, the righteousness of Christ to us and imputes that to us at the, uh, at the time we put our faith in Christ, God also reckons us as having reached a certain maturity. And uh, the proof of that is He's given us His Holy Spirit, which uh, the, uh, the book of Ephesians refers to in chapter 2 as the, uh, as the earnest, uh, or it may be chapter 1, the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, that is, and that word earnest uh, means guarantee. Uh, it's a down payment. When you, when you put down uh, earnest money, you're going to buy, say, a house and you put down some earnest money, what does that mean? Well, of course, people would say, well, it means you're serious about buying a house because you may lose your money. Yeah, well, it, it does mean that. But it means more than that. It means there is more to come. And it's the guarantee, you are guaranteeing the person uh, from whom you are buying the house that you are going to pay the whole, uh, the whole price. And God is going to give us all of the inheritance. We are, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ in, uh, uh, in our salvation experience. Now, he says in, again in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now again, I want to emphasize this, and that is when he speaks of baptism here, being baptized into Christ, he's not. There's no water that he's talking about here. This is what he. This is a reference to what John the Baptizer had talked about. Remember, John the Baptizer was down at the Jordan River and uh, he was preaching to everybody and he, he would tell them, he said, now look, I'm here and I'm going to, uh, my, my baptism is a baptism of repentance. When you express repentance, I will baptize you in the water. But he says, there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, it's either one or the other. You'll either be baptized with the Holy Spirit or there'll come a day when you will be baptized with fire, one or the other. And so that's what he's talking about here is that Christ Jesus, when, when we put our faith in Him, He baptizes us. He identifies us into the, the body of Christ. And we have an identification with Him. We have an identification with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then he elaborates. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this, this is an introduction to the illustration he's going to talk about as far as adoption is concerned. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying there are no more Jews and no more Gentiles in the world? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying, well, when you come to Jesus, there, the, you know, there's no more slaves and there's no more freemen? No, he's not saying that either. Is he saying there's no male or female? Is, is, is Paul here a, uh, one of the precursors to the uh, preaching of transgender stuff? Of course not. That's, of course not he's not talking about that. He says the, the point is, is that 
uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a slave or a freeman, whether you are a man or a woman, you're all one in Christ. You have equal worth. You have equal resources uh, that God has given you. Now, clearly, uh, we know that we all have uh, different gifts that uh, uh, God provides us that we are to use to minister to the body of Christ. We have different positions that we are to occupy within the body of Christ itself. We have different ministries that God has called us to. But the truth is we are of equal worth. We have the same resources, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a slave or a freeman, whether you're a Jew or a Greek. We all have that same worth. We all have those same resources. And he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Remember, that was one of the promises that God made to Abraham, was that <clears throat> that ultimately one day that uh, that God would uh, would bring forth uh, offspring that would rule the the whole earth, and in fact, through that offspring, and of course, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, through that offspring, the whole world would be blessed, and the world is blessed as we take proclaim the gospel all over the world. And God in His mercy brings folks to faith in Christ. All who do become heirs, heirs of this promise. And what does that mean? That means that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And that Holy Spirit, again, is the earnest that God gives us. It's the guarantee that there's more to come. And that, uh, that we are going to, that we are heirs and that we are joint heirs with Christ. And one day we will even have a body, uh, like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's headed. Now that brings us to chapter, I'm sorry, to verse, uh, yeah, chapter four of Galatians. And, uh, and really he gets into, uh, he begins to get into, uh, the, uh, his real argument here. And he says this, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, now here when he says child, he's talking about a minority age, not necessarily just an infant, but somebody who's not, who's not reached the age of maturity yet. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything. Now, how is he the owner? Well, he's the owner by promise because it's going to come someday. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, there's that word until again. Until the date set by his father. Now, the, the point is... Is this, this, is, this is what life is like under the law. That under guardians, under managers, you got to do this, you got to do this. Is somebody always hassling you about something? Uh, what he's referring to here, and it's a, a Roman custom, is what was known as the toga virilis. Uh, the, the toga of manhood, which was a plain white woolen garment. It was, uh, the toga was worn by, by Roman males at the time that they reached the time of their majority, that is, when they came of age. Uh, the, uh, it was a time that the Father was set for them, and He was determined the, the Father was going to make them an heir so that His family name would be carried on. And at that point, He would become this, uh, this uh, one who formerly had just been little more than a slave because he was under guardians and managers. He was now a Roman citizen, and his name was added to the official list uh, of the of the city where they were. Uh, and now he not only had responsibilities and obligations, but he also had privileges, including the privilege to vote. But it only occurred at the time that was set by the Father. That's the illustration that Paul is using here. That even though he's only a child, he's no different from a slave. Though he's the owner, by promise, of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is, basic moral 
principles. That it's it's the idea of the ABCs. Uh, you know, there's a there's a morality. There's a general morality that's that's in the world. And it, uh, for example, m- murder in uh, in every society I know about is uh, is is forbidden. And there's a penalty to pay for the murder of someone. That's uh, that's not just the the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's not just Christendom. That's uh, that's everywhere. Elementary principles of the world, the, the ABCs, the basic moral principles, the fundamental theories, as it were, of a uh, of a of a fallen uh, world. It says, "But verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman." Notice the qualifications here. Had to be born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, and this this has uh, the, the born of a woman and born under... Uh, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, really shows us the dual nature of Christ. He was He's 100% God because God sent forth His Son, but He was born of a woman. He was also 100% human. And that was necessary because if He was going to lay down His life for people the sacrifice had to correspond. That's the reason in the Old Testament the animal sacrifices had to be uh, conducted over and over and over and over. And and even then, they didn't put away sin. Uh, Even on the day of Yom Kippur, you know, you you were maybe you were good for another year, but then the next year you're gonna have to you're gonna have to get together and offer those same sacrifices all over again. He says, uh, verse six, and because you are sons. Well, wait a minute, I didn't finish reading the verse. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This was the time set by the Father. This was the time now that God, not only are are we born into the kingdom of God, but now God reckons us as His children who have reached the age of maturity. And having reached the age of maturity, therefore that makes us heirs, His heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Papa or Daddy. He says, so you are no longer a slave. That is, you're not under you're not under the law. You're not under some system of merit. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now what is he talking about here? He said, before you knew God, you you were a slave to paganism. You were or maybe you know, if you were thought of yourself as some kind of moral, upright kind of person, you were you were involved in all kinds of rituals. Uh, you know how you know how small children are with superstitions, you know, don't step on a crack, you'll break your daddy's back, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, Superstitions, you know that I've I'm, I've got the uh, I've got the hopscotch tournament uh, today at Child Might. I've got to take my lucky rabbit's foot with me. All kinds of superstitions. It says, okay, now that's the way it was, and you were enslaved to those things. If you didn't have your lucky rabbit's foot, why goodness, you just didn't think you could do anything. If you didn't go through the right ritual, then somehow things were just weren't going to work out at all, or you were just a plain pagan. He says, but in but verse nine says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And that's that's the idea of now that God has made Himself known to you and you've become intimate with God. That is, you have a relationship with Him. 
And think of it this way. You know, one of the things that Packer says in that uh, in that chapter 19 that uh, where I read just a, a few things from, uh, one of the things that he says is that while justification is the... Uh, I'm sorry. He says that adoption is the highest privilege that we have as children of God. And some people would argue, oh, no, that can't be justification has got to be the highest privilege. He says, no, justification is the greatest need that we have, but adoption is the greatest privilege that we have because, and, and when you look at it, the, uh, the idea of, uh, of justification takes place in a, in a forensic sort of environment. You're standing in a courtroom before a judge and as you express faith in Christ, the judge, as it were, slams down the gavel and God acquits you of your sin. But in, in most courtroom scenes, you know, well, you turn and you leave the courtroom and the judge goes back to his chamber and that's the end of things. That's where adoption comes in. Because the judge who says, I acquit you of your sins, in fact, I declare that the very righteousness of my son now I impute to you, I account to you, I credit to you. The judge arises from behind the bench and takes off his robe and steps around where we are and puts his arm around us and says, don't call me judge, call me father. And I want you to come and live with me. See, that's the reason that, and I think Packer makes a great argument for it, that adoption is the greatest privilege that we have because there, there is this intimacy with God that, uh, that we just would not have otherwise. But now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? How, how can you... Now remember, the, the Judaizers were convincing the Galatians and said, hey, you, you guys, you got to be circumcised. you got to start keeping the law. you got to start doing all this stuff. And Paul says, how can you possibly turn back to this works mentality? How can you turn back to any kind of system of merit those things, and notice the two terms that he uses about those things. He says they are weak and they are worthless because they won't, they won't accomplish what needs to be done. The only thing that can accomplish what needs to be done in our life is faith in Christ and His finished work, not what I can do. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. See, there's a, there's a danger in substituting ritual for a genuine inward experience. The, the issue is not, what can I do? What have I done to ingratiate myself with God? The issue is, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. As believers in Christ, we not only are born into the kingdom of God, born again into the kingdom of God, but we have a legal standing. And that legal standing is that we have the privileges and also the responsibilities of adult standing in Christ. We are heirs of Christ. And we have unlimited, unhindered access to the Father. That's the reason the writer of Hebrews says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Paul says, How can you go back to the old way? I mean, when you look at the law, you, you, you know, just look at temple worship, for, for example. I mean, you talk about a picture of limited access. That's it. I mean, you've, you've got those two compartments inside the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, uh, where the high priest could, only the high priest could go in behind that curtain once a year. That was on the day of Yom Kippur to sprinkle the blood uh, on, the, on the mercy seat. 
once a year and just the high priest. Now, in front of that was the holy place. And of course, that was where the lampstand and the showbread and the, uh, the altar of incense were all located. And other priests could go into that compartment not only the high priest, but other priests as well, to change the bread out on a daily basis, to, to uh, uh, take care of the, uh, the lamp stand, to burn incense. But then out beyond that, you've got, uh, you've got all of these uh, uh, various areas that out there. The first area had to do was only Levites could go into that, uh, into that uh, area. And then beyond that, there was uh, there was a place where uh, Jewish men could come. Beyond that, there was a place where Jewish women could come. Beyond that, there was a place, and there was a wall around that. Beyond that, there was a place where Gentiles could come. But look, I mean, here are the Gentiles way on the outside. You talk about limited access. But remember, on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, one of the things that happened in that temple is that thick curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place split right down the middle, and it's a picture of unlimited unhindered access to the presence of God the Father. That's what it means to be an adopted son. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and following, Paul wrote this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear of what? Well, fear of dying, fear of not doing enough. Have, have I, is my sacrifice good enough? Have I made enough sacrifices? There's always this uncertainty. Have I done enough? That's the way it is with any kind of system of merit. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Notice that Paul ties in here the importance of perseverance. Perseverance is, is, is one of the proofs of our salvation. You know, God God has given us uh, uh, given us the testimony of His Word that uh, it, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We believe that. We believe that testimony. But He also gives us subjective testimony. The Spirit of God who indwells us whispers to us and reminds us that we are children of God. He leads us in paths of righteousness. Uh, he causes us to persevere. That's all part of the proof of, uh, of our salvation. Uh, notice that the argument that he's making here. He's saying, look guys, originally you were under the bondage of, of idols, essentially. You know, whether it was whatever system of merit you were under, whether it was just plain old paganism, whether you were living on the basis of superstition, whatever it was, you were under the you were under bondage trying to appease whatever gods it it was that you were serving but you've been freed by Christ and now what you're doing is you're going back to bondage again by going back to the law thinking that by doing all these things somehow you are going to ingratiate yourself to God that is false teaching all you need to do is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and keep in step with His Spirit. The Spirit, will, the Spirit of God will lead us in righteousness. Again, uh, although we're born as babies into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, God reckons us as having reached a certain maturity, giving us the Holy Spirit. He is the earnest of our inheritance. Our, our maturity, but our maturity as a son or a daughter of God, 
is not complete until the time of the resurrection. And at that time, we will have not only a new nature, a new spirit, but we'll have new bodies that correspond to all of that. Remember, in, in justification, we, are, we have been freed uh, from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. But in glorification, when we are finally with our Savior, in glorification, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. Praise be to God for His great mercy. Now, well, we've got a little bit of time left, so let's, let's look at the, some more of Galatians chapter 4. And this is uh, Paul's uh, sort of personal concern. There's a, there's a change of tone that he has here. Uh, he goes from argumentation to essentially to appeal. And in fact, it's a, it's a tender kind of appeal, like a, like a mother appealing to a child. Uh, Galatians 4 verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Now, what, is, what, is he, what does he mean by that? He says, look, I'm free from the law, but I'm not lawless. I don't just live any way I please. I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We've already seen that in Galatians chapter 2. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, you didn't wrong me when you when you turned when you started following these Judaizers. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, apparently whatever whatever his bodily ailment was, it was something that was odious. Uh, it must have uh, it must have been a terrible thing to behold. Because he talks about that, though my condition was a trial to you, and and not only that, the you know he's bringing the gospel. People's lives were being changed during that uh, first missionary journey. He and uh, he and Barnabas, and uh, and so you know when somebody has uh, has poured their life into ours and has made a tremendous change in our lives, you know when they suffer, we we. We suffer along with them too, and and it means that he. But he goes on to say, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? What happened? You you treated me like I was an angel, and now you've let the Judaizers convince you that I'm your enemy. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, most Bible scholars believe that that statement right there indicates that the Apostle Paul had developed some sort of uh, eye ailment. And apparently it was uh, pretty disgusting to look at. And uh, and that's the reason he says, "Look, you you loved me so much, you cared about me so much that that if it had been possible for you to do it, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given and given to them to me because of the condition that I was in." And he goes on to say, in verse sixteen: "Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth?" So he said, "Look, you treated me like an angel when I was there, and now you consider me as an enemy." That's what these Judaizers are doing. They're turning you against the gospel. They're turning you against me. They're telling lies about the gospel. They're telling lies about my apostleship. You know, in, in Galatians twenty-seven verse six, it says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy." And the Judaizers were kissing up to the Galatians, but they were doing so to fool them. And, and notice, Paul even addresses the motives of the Judaizers. He says, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, that is, the, these people who are preaching the wrong gospel, the, a false gospel, which is not even a gospel at all, certainly not good news, the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. Now, now notice the the gist of the argument he, that he's making here. He first of all says, "Remember that early devotion that you had to me. You, you guys loved me so much that even when I was having the trouble that I had physically, that you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me." 
And then he begins to acknowledge the, uh, you considered me an angel, as it were, a messenger sent by God. And then, and then he acknowledges the Judaizers. He says, um, he's, uh, the efforts that they were making. He said, look, uh, the attention is nice. Everybody likes to get attention. He said, they make much of you. They, they're giving you the attention. And I know that feels good. But for no good purpose. They're, the motives that they have in doing this are impure motives. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Be careful when folks want to make you join some sort of exclusive kind of religious group. Our group, oh, our group is the best group to be in over here. You can't trust those folks in this other group. Well, no, you can't trust them if they're not preaching the gospel. But there's something about exclusivism that sort of appeals to there was a sociological study done many many years ago and it was done uh, at a monastery and uh, the idea was here you've got uh, this group of monks they uh, they live in the same conditions they wear the same kind of clothing they eat the same meals that there's just so many variables there that were alike, said, well, let's see what happens. And one of the things that they discovered, to make a long story short, is that even there in the monastery, there were little cliques that had formed that, you know, well, our group prays more than other groups. Our group studies the Scriptures more than other groups. There, there's just something about exclusivism. They, they want to shut you out that they may that you may make much of them so you just think how wonderful they are they don't want you to have anything to do with uh, with true ministers of the gospel now it's all he goes on to say in verse 18 it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. You see, look, I, I don't have any problem with somebody uh, making you feel good about what they're talking about as long as what they're talking about has a good purpose. And the purpose is to glorify God, to build you up in the faith. And, and, and I'm delighted that that's going on even if I'm not there. But that's not what's happening with these Judaizers. And he says, not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Remember, he's, and the idea is, I, I, was like a, I was like a mother bearing children when I was preaching the gospel to you, and you were being born again. And I was in the, I was in the anguish of childbirth as I would preach the gospel, uh, just, just waiting for God to, to bring you to faith, to, uh, that, you, that you might become believers. But now, I'm in anguish again. Because it looks like you've turned turned away. He says, um, verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You know, I, I guess I, in thinking about this, I guess one of the, the examples that uh, could come up of, of what he was experiencing is that uh, when we watch our own children grow up, you know, we they, they struggle with things. And, and we struggle as they struggle. We suffer with them as they make their mistakes. We know that, the, that this particular choice that they're making is, is, is going to bring grief. And we've counseled, and yet they're old enough to make their own decisions, and our, we're just in anguish over this, and we pray for them. That's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the idea that's, that's behind all of this. Um, one of the things Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, which is probably most biographical thing of anything that he's uh, he's he wrote, um, he talks about uh, about these Judaizers and uh, enemies of the gospel. He says, uh, "What anyone else?" Second uh, Corinthians eleven. He says, "What anyone else dares to boast about." I'm speaking as a fool I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I've worked much harder 
been in prison more frequently, and then he just goes through this whole list of dangers and difficulties that he's been through in the process of preaching the gospel to various groups. And near the end of this passage, about verse 26 or 27, he says, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have even uh, often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. See, that's what Paul's talking about when he says, I am perplexed about you. So Paul is appealing here and he says, uh, the goal I have for you is for you to become like me. That is, you former slaves of sin to really enjoy, to know and to enjoy the freedom that you have in Christ. And he says, after all, I became like you. I, I, I lived with you. I lived with the Gentiles. The, the truth is, is that God is not impressed with any kind of system of merit because trying to follow a system of merit <clears throat> is to denigrate everything that His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done. Paul Again, Paul talks about that malady that he had and this loathsome, uh, which must have just been awful, and the fact that although they had considered him an angel, now they were considering him as almost as it were an enemy. They were questioning his apostolic authority. And he says, look, I just want you to know when the, when the Judaizers do this, they are insincere. They have selfish motives. They just want to, as it were, put notches in their belt. Here's somebody else that we've recruited. And the Galatians, Galatians clearly wanted to be, uh, wanted to be wanted. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted, uh, and and there's something about doing things, and that that makes us feel like we can really ingratiate ourselves with God. But again, that's to denigrate the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And clearly, he finishes here with with a term of endearment when he we, when he talks about my little children, for whom I am again in anguish until Christ is formed in you. I want to see the image of Christ developed in you. I don't want to hear about what you're doing in terms of your keeping. Uh, you know what? What? How, how was it that he stated it before? He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And then says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's, uh, let's, let's kind of uh, wind it up here and uh, draw some uh, conclusions about what we've been talking about. There's a quote from, and I put this in your notes, so I'll just read it, from uh, John Stott's book, Only One Way. And it's a, it's a summary of the uh, relationship of the three major covenants. And he says, and I quote, Paul showed the relation between three of the greatest figures of biblical history, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. He explained how God gave Abraham a promise to bless all the families of the earth through his posterity. How he then gave Moses a law which, far from annulling the promise, actually made it more necessary and urgent because it it showed us our sin and it showed us that we can't measure up, we can't uh, please God ourselves. And how, and how the promise was fulfilled in Christ so that everyone whom the law drives to Christ See, we can't keep the law. We can't keep. We certainly can't keep it perfectly, but we just can't keep it. We're going to foul up. We always do in any kind of system of merit. That's the purpose of the law: is to drive us to Christ. It shows us, hey, you you don't measure up. There's nothing you can do to measure up. The only thing you can do is trust in the Lord Jesus. So it turns us to Christ, so that everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. Note that according to the Bible, there's no spiritual neutrality. A person is either part of the old creation or he is a new creation. Each human being is either under the law, that is under some system of merit, or in Christ. There's no other alternative. There are two words that are used in reference to the law, and both of them imply rebuke and punishment. The law is a jailer 
and the law is a child disciplinarian. You know, well, the ABCs are fundamental to learning. You, you need to know your ABCs. But the point he's making here is don't sit in the library and review the ABCs when there's good literature all around you that you ought to be reading. There are three results that emerge from our union with Christ, that is, being in Christ. In Christ we are sons or, or daughters of God. The God who was our judge has now become our Father. And the Spirit who called us and convicted us, convicted us of sin now indwells us and reminds us that we belong to the Father. In Christ we're all one. That is, we also belong to each other as brothers and sisters. Of course there are differences regarding race and rank or sex, but those things don't matter. We're spiritually equal. And having equal worth and equal resources in Christ, we ought to recognize each other as such. In Christ, we're also Abraham's spiritual progeny, his offspring, because we've received the promised blessing. What is that blessing? The indwelling Holy Spirit. Christian life is not a life of bondage to a system of merit, but a life of freedom as a son or a daughter of the living God. Salvation does not depend on our slavish, meticulous obedience to a system of merit. Salvation depends only upon faith in the perfect obedience of Christ Jesus and His finished work, that is, His substitutionary sacrificial death on behalf of all of His people. So, how are we to live the Christian life? Well, while it's true that the Bible speaks of us sometimes as slaves of Christ, bondservants of Christ, we're not slaves of a religious system. We're not seeking to ingratiate ourselves. We're not seeking to uh, obey the Lord out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of delight, out of a sense of devotion because of what He's done for us. You know, uh, in John 15, uh, there in the upper room before Jesus went to the cross, one of the things He said to His uh, disciples, He says, I no longer call you servants. I no longer call you servants. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't servants. But He says, I don't, I don't refer to you. I don't think of you in that, in that vein. We have got to believe what the Bible says about us. And we need to remind ourselves regularly what the Bible says about us. We're to seek to walk in obedience, not again, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of devotion in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to walk in obedience to the One who saved us by His grace. Just a couple of verses as we, uh, as we close. He says uh, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, He says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcision heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you didn't know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus once you were far away from God. But now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in Himself one new people. That's the church from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of His death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from Him and peace to the Jews who were near now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles, 
You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Praise be to God. Let's let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.